Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. The past few weeks, we've been in this series called Blind Spots. Matt has been exploring how we can be blind to the truth about who we are, how we are called to speak the full truth to others so that they can heal their blind spots, and how God sometimes prompts us to this calling and truth-telling even when we aren't ready. I'm excited about today because no matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been Christians, and no matter uh, where we find ourselves on our faith journey, I think we all carry this specific blind spot. I carry this blind spot. And in the stories we find in John, two groups of people carry this blind spot. And while their experiences are different, the blind spot still affects their thoughts and their actions. What is this blind spot, you may ask? Well, today we're going to sit in this truth that our expectations about who God is or how God should act blinds us to the reality of who God is and how God acts. It's a big one. Let's kick things off with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this moment that we can sit and reflect on who you are and what you're doing in our lives, Lord. And as we hear from your word, we just ask that you would speak to us and that you would challenge us uh, and that you would form us in this time together, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Last year, one movie seemed to rule it all, and that was the movie Spider-Man No Way Home. The film, which was arguably pretty epic, was the first post-pandemic movie to hit $1 billion at the global box office, so I would say it did pretty well. If you're one of the few people who didn't see the film, let me recap it for you. Or better yet, let me have IMDb give you an overview. The website says, The Spider-Man's identity now revealed, Peter, who plays Spider-Man, asks Doctor Strange for help. When the spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. Epic. The film was arguably great and had some wonderful cameos in it, but one line stuck out to me as I was watching the film. It was a line from Peter's girlfriend, MJ. In the midst of the chaos and destruction, MJ drops some philosophy, noting that, quote, if you expect disappointment, then you can never really be disappointed. The angsty teenager MJ lives in a world in which her expectations are low. She expects to be disappointed, and so she's never blindsided by a thing when it goes wrong. And when something goes well, she gets to be pleasantly surprised. Her line is a throwaway in the film, but it made me think about the reality of what it means to have expectations of people, of events, and of ourselves. Psychologists define expectations as personal beliefs about an event that may occur. They are assumptions about the future, anticipation based on subjective and objective aspects. We expect that the roller coaster at Disney will work and expectation about an event. We expect that our spouse will throw away the trash when we ask them to, an assumption based either on past experiences or most likely on future hope. 
We expect that our parents will love us. We expect that our friends will be loyal to us. We expect a lot of things about both people and events in our lives. And the expectations we carry for the secular things in our lives filter into the expectations we carry for the sacred. At times, we expect God to act in a certain way or do a certain thing. And at times, our expectations are met. And at times, our expectations are not met. And when those expectations aren't met, it can lead us to question or wonder or anger. Unlike MJ, we don't often expect disappointment in our faith. And so sometimes when disappointment comes, it can radically shake the foundation of our faith. Failed expectations can change the way we see God. It can make us question and it can be tough. And it isn't necessarily bad to carry hopes with God. We get to engage in this fun formation of surrendering and leaning into prayer for our hopes. But at times, our expectations about who God is and what God does becomes a blind spot in our faith lives. These expectations create God in our own image and can block us from experiencing or seeing God's presence in our lives. And that's what happened in these two stories in John. In one story, the religious people's expectations of Jesus and the expectations of the Mosaic law that they held so tightly to blinded them to what Jesus was offering and their blind spots hurt their faith. And then the story, the Palm Sunday story, shows us another group being blinded by their expectations and yet we find them surrendering to what they see. They move away from their blind spots and into the lived reality of their experience with Jesus and it alters them and alters their faith in a positive way. Let's jump in. The first story finds us in John chapter 8 and here is what happened. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And Jesus bent down and sat and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, and the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. These are the first few verses from John 8, and they're interesting from a a literary point of view. They have what some theologians call a checkered history. The passage we just read is actually absent from most of the oldest copies of the gospel, the copies that precede the 6th century. The passage here is also absent from early commentators, meaning they had no passage to comment on. Some theologians say the passage is unhistorical, but because it has the same coherence and the spirit as the rest of John, and because it explores the same characteristics of Jesus that the the, the Gospel of John uncovers, that we have this passage in our uh, modern biblical texts. The passage itself exists, yet it exists in isolation. It's part of the family, but it's that weird kid who sits in the back, and you're not exactly sure if they're a cousin or a friend of a cousin. 
a passage that is here but wasn't originally included. And I point that out because it reminds me that sometimes we keep hidden parts of our story that are important. Sometimes the things we push to the back corner or leave out of our daily and out of our diary are the things that are most important in our faith lives. That moment when we're embarrassed, the moment when we feel isolated, whatever we call other or choose to leave behind is what God uses. The beginning of John 8 is the other, but it's an important other. So what actually is happening in the story we just read? In previous chapters, the ones who are a part of the historical gospel, Jesus is performing incredible miracles. He's feeding the crowd of 5,000 and walking on water. But even in the midst of those miracles, there are rumblings and questions about who Jesus is and what he is doing. In John 6, verses 66, some of those following Jesus did not like what he was teaching, and so they left the community following Jesus. In chapter 7, Jesus has to thwart bad advice from friends who wondered why he wasn't becoming more of a political and power figure. In 7 verses 25, people are questioning and doubting Jesus as he speaks to them. And finally, in 7:45, the religious leaders don't believe Jesus. It's this mixture of seeing visible things and disbelief. That's what fills the middle pages of, God, of John. And that's where we find Jesus here in this passage in chapter 8. Jesus, in the midst of everything, leaves his community and people and wanders into a sacred garden to spend time in nature and to spend time with God. He's there all night, and as the darkness of the night breaks into the light of day, we find Jesus appearing at the temple from one sacred place to another. If you've ever been to Israel, you can walk this walk. It's probably a 15 to 20 minute walk from a beautiful hill where the historic Mount of Olives stands and you descend from the hills into where the temple would have been. So Jesus descends and he's met by religious leaders who have brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. Some theologians note that the religious leaders historically did not wake up early in the morning unless there was a specific occasion or reason. And so we are posed to understand that the scene was certainly odd. Jesus may have chosen a time when they wouldn't have been an issue. It's like going shopping when stores open to avoid teens or going to Disney on a Wednesday to avoid people. And these religious men up early bring to Jesus a woman. The Bible makes it clear that her guilt was certain. In fact, verse 3 says she was caught in the act, which brings up questions, but we won't ask those. And the religious leaders throw this woman who is indisputably guilty to Jesus, and they ask him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? The law the leaders held so tightly to was pretty clear about the crime and the punishment. Leviticus 20.10 says that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. And in Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24, it says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The law was clear and the leaders knew it. And verse 6 tells us that they were in part blinded because they knew the law and they wanted to trap Jesus. Whereas the actions of the religious leaders were bold and brash, Jesus was small and quiet and gentle. The verses tell us that his response to these questions was passive. He sat and wrote in the sand while being bombarded with questions. And we don't know what he was writing. There are, of course, theories, but we don't know. 
Jesus wrote and roots out the evil in the religious leaders' hearts. A verse tells us when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Capital punishment in the Jewish tradition started with the witnesses, and since in theory these religious leaders were witness to the act of adultery, it would make sense for them to enact the punishment. But Jesus flips it. It's not the one who witnesses the adultery, it's the one who is blameless that does the stone throwing. Well, no one was blameless, and so they left. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus never challenged the innocence of the woman. She was at fault. And yet he saw into the trap and the trickery and saw past the Mosaic laws and acted in a way that defied the expectations of the religious leader. He dismisses rather than condemning the woman. Jesus defies the expectations of the religious leaders who expected Jesus to at least mirror or stick with the laws and codes of their religion. Jesus defies the potential expectations of the woman caught in adultery who may have expected Jesus to condemn her or at least cast judgment on her. The expectations of these characters blinded them to the reality of what Jesus was going to do. Our expectations about who God is or how God should act, blinds us to the reality of who God is and how God acts. And this narrative is found in another story in John. Now today in most churches is something we call Palm Sunday. A big holiday in the church world is this thing called Easter, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus later. And we have different timestamps in this celebration, one of which is Palm Sunday. And it's a story we find in John 12. Unlike John 8, which isn't included in the early gospel, John 12 is a story not only found in the early gospels, but it's also a story that appears in all four gospels. A week before Passover, Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany. After raising Lazarus from the dead, a dinner is hosted in Jesus' honor. And as he sits with friends, Mary takes a jar of oil or pure nard and anoints Jesus' feet. The night wanes and the chapter continues into what we now call Palm Sunday. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The title for this section in the NIV is Jesus Enters Jerusalem as a King, but I think the title is a bit misleading. When I was little, I used to watch Aladdin, the Disney animated film, often. It was my older sister's favorite Disney movie, hence why we watched it daily. My sister identified and connected with Jasmine. In fact, we bought her a stuffed tiger that she loved to death. I identify with the genie, if that tells you anything about my personality. In this Disney film, we see a young Aladdin arrive to Agrabah, a city of mystery and enchantment in a fantastically kingly fashion. Prince Ali, as the genie calls him, is welcomed into the city with an army of bell-carrying men, people juggling swords, dancers, gold camels, peacocks, and of course, a large inflatable monkey. Yes, I did watch the song as I wrote this. 
He rides an elephant, stories and fairy tales spreading about his strength and wealth. And as he rides closer to the palace, throwing out money to all of those around him, people in the bazaar can't help but look at Aladdin, looking at the show. It's the way you expect a king to enter into a city, and it's certainly the way many expected the Messiah to enter into Jerusalem. The entry of a king is marked by power, by scale, by prestige, uh, but we know that isn't what Jesus did. John 12 tells us that a great crowd swarmed around Jesus and his disciples, and they were there for the Passover celebration, but scholars believe that most of these people came from the Galilee region, and therefore they would have potentially known or been aware of the work and the miracles of Jesus. The crowd knows Jesus, and even though they are far from home and they're far from their party supplies, they pull together what they have to welcome Jesus into the city. With palm branches going, Jesus enters the city and is greeted by people yelling, Hosanna, which translates to save now or save. It's this exclamation of praise. The moment moment is boisterous but humble. It's ecstatic but intimate. The moment also fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9.9 notes that, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. This balance of power and humility are characteristics we find of Jesus both in John 8 and John 12. The people around them in this John 12 story believed. They held the importance and the sacredness of the moment, but interestingly, the disciples are the ones that carried an expectation that was being challenged. John 12 ends this triumphant entry by noting at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. We don't know what expectations, if any, the disciples carried with them as they entered this town. Maybe they thought it would just be a normal walk into Jerusalem. Maybe they expected a Prince Ali sort of introduction to the Messiah. Who knows? But whatever expectations they carry, John 12 tells us that they weren't expecting Jesus to do what he did. At first, the disciples didn't understand this. At first, their expectations were not met. Only later, says John, they understood. They shifted their understanding to see what Jesus had done and how his actions fulfilled this prophecy in Zechariah. Jesus did something here amongst his closest friends that defied their understanding and characterization of both the event and the person. Yet as they sat with the countering experience, they began to understand and reshape their expectations and in doing so, they understood the glory of the Palm Sunday entrance. These two stories found in John are stories about expectations about blind spots. They are stories of how the expectations about who God is or how God should act has the potential to blind us to the reality of who God is and how God acts. Apart from sharing similar narratives, these stories reveal a few points of reflection for us, for our lives and for our faith development. And we're going to be talking about those in a minute. You know, so often we see only what we want to see. Our reality is rooted in our perception of things, and we don't even pause to consider what God sees. Now, I've been thinking a lot about expectations lately, and I don't know about you, but assuming I know what God could or should do is often problematic for me. You know, I see how easy it is for our expectations to be misguided, or how tightly we hold on to what we think. And that can blind us from seeing who God is and all that he's capable of doing. 
You know, frustration and discontentment grow out of a heart full of misplaced hope. How we feel about God and the way we see him affects our view of him. And this potentially creates blind spots, especially when our view is distorted. You know, God desires for us to experience him freely, expect unexpected things, rather than trying to anticipate what God will do. His purpose is way bigger than our expectations, and he's able to do exceedingly more immeasurably more than we can imagine or think. You know, where are you today? Have you pulled away from God because of some unmet expectation? You know, it's easy to do. We can't change what we don't acknowledge, so it's an important thing to consider. Because when we refuse to acknowledge what's true, it's likely that we've developed a blind spot. All right, let's rejoin Kylie. In elementary school, some say first grade, some say third grade, you learn how to process a story with the five W's of writing. The who, what, when, where, and why. It's a process that helps us understand the characters and the narrative and the practical applications of the things we read, teaching students reading comprehension. Well, as we reflect on the truths of these stories, we're going to be reflecting on the five W's. Well, technically the four W's and one H, but you get it thinking about our blind spots about God and thinking about these stories in John, we find ways to ask ourselves questions so that we don't carry the burden of a blind spot, so that we can live wholly into a God and not define God by our own expectations. You ready for the five W's? We're going to ask why, how, who, what, and when. The first one is easy. And these stories point to the question, why? Why is this happening? Here's the truth. When we carry expectations of and for God, when we're blinded by these boxes for God, we can find ourselves in situations where we ask why. And these situations can be positive or negative. If we view God as our eternal father who judges and punishes us, then we may ask why when God brings joy and peace into our lives. And when we have a mindset that if we live well, that God will allow life to be all rainbows and easy, then we may have a question of why when life inevitably becomes tough. In John 8, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus by using laws. Their expectations of religious people and leaders was, what, was that their actions would stem from the legalism of their faith. And so when Jesus altered the religious protocol, they undoubtedly asked why. Why would someone flip these laws to impact the religious person and not the person caught in adultery? And the disciples were probably constantly asking why. Why Jesus chose to focus on the poor or heal the sick. Why Jesus was calm in storms. And why Jesus, who was powerful, chose to ride into town on a donkey. Why? In our lives, as we grow spiritually through moments of good and bad, starting with a why prompts Uh, and helps us to see and reveal what our expectations of God are. They help us uncover, perhaps unconscious, blind spots. And naturally, the why moves us into the how. How is this thing challenging my faith right now? In John 8 and John 12, everyone had something that challenged their faith. They acknowledged, firstly, the why, that something was interrupting their expectations, and then they found out the why was leading into the how. In John 8, the religious leaders had their legalistic faith challenge, and the foundation for their faith and religious rhythms was directly challenged by Jesus redefining expectations. I would argue that the woman caught in adultery also probably experienced some form of challenge. 
this system that she lived in, even if she didn't live according to it, she was shattered. It was shattered when Jesus acted in a way that countered death. In John 12, the disciples had their expectations of a triumphant entry challenged. If Y brings clarity to a circumstance and the expectations of that circumstance, it's a sort of reflection of the outside experience, then the how pushes us to internal reflection. How is this experience challenging our beliefs? We see stories of challenged faiths a lot in the Bible, all different, but all with this truth that our faith can be challenged in different ways. Job was challenged when he was processing loss on a tremendous scale. David and Engedi was challenged when he was in total isolation. Ruth and Esther were challenged when they were thrown into unfamiliar places. And the characters in John are challenged. And in each of these stories, new characteristics and new realities of this infinite God are found. And it's the same for us. Our blind spots tell us that God has to act in a certain way and that our faiths need to be a certain way. Asking why and how unravels these blind spots and lets us reflect on who God is and how we respond to those challenges. And the good news is that we don't have to have that process and reflect on the why and the how alone. It brings me to the next question, who can I process this with? In student ministry, we talk a lot about how the company you keep influences who you become as an individual. And while we say it a lot for our kids and our students, we often don't say it for adults. But the truth is who we surround ourselves with, who we process with can add to or help relieve us of blind spots in our faith. The religious leaders held together in a way that inhibited their communal and their individual spiritual growth. They carried the same blind spots and existed within the blind spot together. The disciples countered this. They carried a blind spot together, but through experience and reflection, they were able to process and change as they experienced Jesus. And they experienced that more deeply on Palm Sunday. Who you have around you can help you understand not only your personal blind spots, like Matt talked about a few weeks ago when he encouraged us to live into speaking that last 10%, but who you surround yourself with can also help you understand God when you're wondering why and experiencing the how. A few years ago, a celebrity was in the news because it was argued that they were surrounding themselves with yes men. So, so social psychologists call these yes men a truth bias. When we feel discomfort or challenged, we can surround ourselves with a low conflict person or we ourselves can be in low, low conflict positions. A Forbes article on Yes Men talked about how some of us deal with uncomfortable situations with uncritical agreement. Yes Men. Filling our lives of faith with Yes Men can keep us in blind spots. Now, I'm not saying we need friends or partners that are combative, but like the disciple, who we process our hows and whys with can shape us and they can keep us trapped in blind spots. Surrounding ourselves with people who are pursuing growth, who recognize blind spots and react to them are important. Why is this thing happening? How is it challenging my faith and who is walking alongside me so that I'm not blinded by these blind spots? These three questions are sort of informative, reflective questions, and they lead to two outcome questions, what and when. What is God showing me? 
And when do I surrender the blind spot I'm holding on to? God reveals truths to us in funny ways. He reveals truths to us by putting us in situations like we see in the story of Esther. He reveals truths to us when he calls us to something extraordinary, extraordinary, like in the stories of Moses and Noah. He reveals truths to us in moments of happiness, like the wedding in Cana, but also in moments of isolation, like Jonah. He reveals truths when he uncovers the improbable, like when Jesus does miracles. He reveals truths when we're challenged, like in John 8 and John 12. God is showing us something today. I truly believe that. He's revealing the answer to the what. God is revealing something about his character to us, something we have maybe chosen to not see or to avoid. And as God reveals these to us, as we figure out what God is showing us, we may be called to surrender our expectations or our blind spots so that we can live into the fullness of God. The disciples did this. In John 12, they found this moment of celebration. It challenged their expectations of how Jesus would enter the town. They processed amongst friends. They found that God was showing them who Jesus was and then the truth of the messianic purpose. And then they surrendered and they allowed the glory of God to redirect their minds and their hearts. The religious leaders, well, they missed it. They held so tightly onto a blind spot, onto an expectation of God. And listen, I understand it. They had a faith and a system that told them that they had a faith that it had to look a certain way and that a lived faith did certain things. And when Jesus came to counter that, they boarded up the walls of their hearts and their minds. They had clear expectations of the God they served and they couldn't see what Jesus was revealing. And they couldn't see when they needed to surrender. They held on with tight fists and they missed out on an experience with Jesus. And if we were honest, we would say that some of us have done the same, or maybe in seasons of the same. We've held on to a blind spot or an expectation. We haven't engaged in the challenge that surrender proposes. And we sit here longing to know God and be formed by God, but we can't. Why, how, who, what, And when is a process that challenges us and causes us to let go of a blind spot that we hold. Next week is Easter, as you probably know. And Easter is a celebration of Jesus doing the impossible, doing the miraculous, resurrecting and transforming the lives of all of us. His process is one of pain and death and then salvific glory. And I encourage you to not miss that because of a blind spot. I encourage you this week to take one of the blind spots Matt and I have talked about, to spend some time working through it or working on it. I encourage you to spend time in the why and how and who and what and when, so that when we approach the Easter celebration, we can be unburdened by a blind spot. When we approach Easter, we can celebrate a resurrected Jesus who brings a fullness of hope and joy and new realities. John 8 and John 12 help us to see that sometimes our blind spots are about God. And these blind spots deter us from seeing and engaging with a God who acts and calls us in challenging ways. The ending of John tells us that the resurrected Jesus invites us into a new life, a new creation in which we don't have to let these blind spots hold us back from who God is and what God is calling us to. So friends, as we draw near to an empty tomb, 
Let us let go of the blind spots that hold us back and let us walk with sight to God. Let's spend some time in worship as we wrap up our time together. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.